In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. God has spared the firstborn of the Hebrews from the 10th and final plague, and in return, he now charges that every person and animal to first open the womb are to be consecrated to him. God then leads the people in pillars of cloud and fire, but why is he taking them the long way to the promised land? Good morning. Today is Friday, November 25th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Our program is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them at lhfmissions.org. Well, I pray that each of you had a blessed Thanksgiving yesterday. I hope you were able to catch our program also yesterday with the Reverend Dr. John Brunner. He covered the 10th and the final plague before God's people were finally freed. If not, be sure to head to kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word to catch up on it or any other episodes you've missed. But this morning, as we turn our attention toward Exodus 13, please join me in welcoming my guest, the Reverend Jesse Baker, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Hardwick, Minnesota. Pastor Baker, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's great to be able to do this with you. Yeah, and you know, the people at home can't tell, but every now and then, and I always like to point it out, my guest is not joining us via phone or via the internet, but I have you right here in front of me. And so that's wonderful. You actually live in the same uh, general area that I do in Minnesota. We're in the same circuit. We've just finished a Winkle or a pastor's conference together. And so now it's, it's nice to have you here. Uh, before we dive into the text though, would you share with the audience a little bit about how God is working through your ministry and through your congregation? Yeah, we're uh, about 10 minutes north of where you are and uh, very rural. I always joke, uh, half of the parsonage I live in is surrounded by cows because it is. So uh, it's just kind of typical in that regard, but it's just uh, plugging away, trying to make an impact on this community and keep uh, bringing people to Christ. Oh, that's that's great. Now, you've been there for how many years now? I've been there three years, so I'm there straight out of seminary. So it's Excellent. my first call. So it is your first call, and that's wonderful. And the little time I've known you, which has only been two years now, uh, because I moved here from Connecticut just a couple of years ago, um, I know that you're a great pastor, and I know that you're going to have a lot of great insight for us today. Uh, before we uh, continue, though, would you open our time together in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the gifts you've given us, especially coming out of Thanksgiving, that we have uh, continued to give thanks for all that you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, continue to be with us, guide us all the days of our lives, and continue to draw us closer to you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our text is going to be chapter 13, and chapter 13 looks like it has 22 verses in it, and it's separated into two main chunks. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, followed by the consecration of the firstborn, and then the Pillar of Cloud and Fire. At least that's according to the ESV editors. I think to get us started, I'm just going to read the, uh, you know what, just the first two verses. Just a little taste and a mousse-bouche, so to speak, of what's coming up, and then we'll get started. Uh, here we go, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, I know that's not very far into our text and we have so much to cover, but what's going on here? You know, what has caused 
God to uh, call them to consecrate or dedicate the firstborn. Yeah, we're coming right out of the final plague, which is the big reason why partially God is saying this is it's kind of a constant reminder on the forefront of Israel's mind that when you have a baby, remember what I did to you back in Egypt and what I've done for you, that you're coming out. You you didn't leave Egypt because you're this great people and this great nation, but out of my mercy that, you know, I came into Egypt, um, the firstborn of all the Egyptians dies at Passover. And this is a reminder to them constantly that, you know, God has brought you out of this. This is something for you to constantly remember and almost participate with all of Israel, if you will, and the church at large, that this is still something God has done for you. And it's a constant reminder because, I mean, if you're going to have kids, you're going to have a first kid at some point, right? That's going to be the first one, obviously. So if you're if taking part of that and having children, the first time you have a kid, it's like, oh, that's right, that's this. And it's not even with their kids, too. It makes a point of God says, you know, all the firstborn, man and beast. So it's constantly on the front of their minds, you know, God has worked salvation for us. Yeah, and that, re- that redemption which is language that we see all the time. We talk about it all the time in terms of our relationship with Christ, but I don't know that we always fully understand that redeem means to exchange uh, for a price. And so part of the consecration is not just an emotional one or I'm lifting up to God, okay, you know, this one's yours. It's, it's also something that's usually followed by a sacrifice and some other things. So we'll talk about that. But in our text, as we go on then, it, it, he establishes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, I'd like to read those texts and get them on the table, and then we'll see. So it's a pretty long one. This is going to be through verse 16. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. We're in there actually with verse 10. So he's instituted the feast of unleavened bread. What's all this about leavening and leavened bread? And, um, and he's referring back to then, of course, the Abrahamic covenant, all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. So leaven is generally, it's your yeast. It's what makes the bread rise. And if you've ever worked with bread a whole lot, that takes quite a bit of time. You, if you're making bread, sometimes you have to, what they call proof it, which with, with, you're essentially making the yeast uh, expand the bread. And that can take modern techniques, I mean, two hours at least. So it's kind of a way, if you take out the leavening process of the bread, you get more of a flat bread and it's a lot quicker. And that's kind of the point is God saying, hey, like, guys, let's get out of here. You're not going to linger in this land. It's not a, you know, 
let's go pack the couch and grab that too to bring with us with the donkey. It's kind of a go make the fastest meal you possibly can. You're leaving slavery and there's not a second guess on this. You're, you, and that's a way for the reminded of doing it. Like there's no dilly dallying, if you will. There's not a second option coming around. So this is referring back to when they were to eat with haste and standing up. And uh, the, of course, yeast, you talked about the modern yeast taking a couple hours, and that's true. But that's also genetically modified cultured yeast over thousands of years of, you know, so even back then, I would imagine that yeast is a very kind of a natural thing. They're probably relying on it being just present in there. It would have taken a long time. And so, yeah, if we think back to when he is um, rescuing them from slavery, he tells them, yeah, you, you got you to gotta go in a hurry. But now they have to do that ceremonially well, forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. Think, look at Moses' words. It's tell these people, is, uh, it's all first person, the, what the Lord did for me. And this isn't just for the generation Moses is talking to. There's a reason Moses is writing this down and still saying this, that this is something God has done for us even today, this action, that through the means he has worked, he is constantly doing actions of salvation for the sake of his church. This isn't just for, you know, the people who are about to cross the Red Sea how many thousands of years ago, but for us today too, it's a reminder that God works through these means. I mean, that's partially why we're coming up not far away anymore. I mean, from Jesus instituting the Passover when he does too. And still today we have our unleavened bread and it's Jesus' body and blood, but it's also maybe a reminder for us too that even back here, God's working salvation. And elsewhere in the scriptures, yeast is attributed to sin. Right, because we think of Jesus saying, "Beware the leaven of the Pharisees," um, and you know, back in history, back during this time, I mentioned that we would have had yeast. We have the little yeast packets. We had some sugar and some warm water. Back then, they would have just kept a little chunk of dough, and they would have fed the dough probably with some sort of sweetener to keep it going. And then, when they wanted to make bread, they'd take a little piece of that dough and they'd throw it in there, and of course, it would leaven the whole lump. So this seems to be where we're where we find the origin of leaven being representative of something that you must not have around you. God's not saying never eat bread with leaven in it, right? You can only eat flatbreads. He's saying ceremonially, this is to remind you of my rescue, the way I rescued you from the 10th plague that he sent, that rescued you from slavery ultimately. And then you're going to do this. And naturally your kids are going to say, why are we doing this, dad? And you're going to say, well, here's why. And it gives you that opportunity to teach. Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and, it's, and here too you have Moses saying, like, get rid of it entirely. Don't keep a little, like, don't go hide it, you know, in the cookie jar at the bottom of it. And you pull it back out later, like, completely get rid of the yeast entirely. Because then it, it creates the teaching moment even easier. Dad, why are we doing this? Or Mom, why are we doing this? And you, you better know why. Like, this, this isn't just a meaningless tradition we just do for the sake of doing it. There is, there's actually something going on with this that's a moment to be like, all right, like, God has brought you out of slavery and into the promised land. And this is what the wonderful actions he continues to do. And I don't want to belabor on the yeast thing either, but as you, as you talked, you know, that brought to my mind, you know, the little kids asking mom and dad, why are we doing this? But I can also see 
from, let's say, mom's point of view, she's a little annoyed because if they needed that little clump to save it in order to, in order to you know, uh, leaven their bread, so they pulled off little chunks and everything, she has to get rid of that completely. This isn't like, go put it in a jar and don't use it for a night. This is be rid of it. So there's also, and maybe I'm stepping too far on this and you can tell me if I am, but there seems to be a little bit of a, you need to rely on God, right? So, so yes, it's just leavened bread, but still it's kind of a luxury. And so it's like, yeah, you have to rely on God. So get rid of anything you've been saving behind. It brings to my mind the manna in the desert, right? You can't keep any for the next day. Um, again, maybe not the best connection, but I definitely kind of see this, this, the spirit of this, that we need to rely on God and not try to save up things for ourselves. All right. Well, we are looking at our text as we continue. And he says, the month of Abib, you are going out. Um, any thoughts on that? This is the, which month of the year is that? We're talking probably March or April. Okay. So it would still line up really well generally when we would have our uh, do Passover ourselves. And so he's, he's changed it. This is now the first month of their year, though, because of this. Um, and, you know, now it, it was later named Nisan. That's the month that it's uh, eventually become. And, yeah, so it's the same, same time period as we're doing because Christ, in the same way that God takes this event and injects it with meaning and purpose, Christ will then later take this feast and inject it with meaning and purpose. It yeah. keeps getting fulfilled. Well, and what a great way to start the year. Right. I mean, right you're starting absolutely. it on the right foot, really, because, I mean, we, our New Year is almost just for the sake of culture and the calendar. There's not really, like, this big event, and what a way to usher in the year of being like, hey, like, we're going to start this year off by remembering the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, obviously up till when Jesus dies for us. But I mean, it's, it is the event of the Old Testament of that God has shown his power and his might and his love for his people. So, I mean, you're starting the year with that in mind. It's a really good framing for this whole people of what the whole year is going to be like. Who is this astrophysicist guy that's always on Twitter and he's always busting people's chops about, uh, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. So he posts every year, I think, around New Year, something like, you know, it has no, you know, no significance in science and no cosmological significance. And, and everybody's just like, all right, we're just trying to celebrate. But he's right. You know, our New Year happens in the middle of the winter. Wouldn't it be much more appropriate, perhaps, for us to celebrate our New Year uh, with the resurrection of Jesus, with Easter. Yeah, probably. Right. Of and course, we in the church celebrate New Year's with the Advent season after Thanksgiving, yeah. which isn't bad either because yeah. it's, it's this transition period. But, yeah. but even culturally, like our new, I've thought about this a little bit. Our New Year's really the school year. Oh, our, the school year, whether you know it or not, folks at home, governs your life. <laughs> even if you are 90 years old, <laughs> There's something about the local school that will govern your life. I, I'm not putting a value judgment on it, good or bad. I'm just agreeing with uh, uh, Pastor Baker here that, that, yeah, it does. It really does, doesn't it? Well, we have here then this uh, new year, and it's celebrated with the remembrance of all that God has done to you know, bring them out of Egypt. Um, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. 
No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Now we've covered a little bit about the idea of that, you know, the leavened bread is not just put aside for a week, but it's completely removed. Um, interestingly, he says, it shall not be seen with you in any of your territory. So are we getting the idea here that not only is it removed from your house and your neighbor's house, but it just has to be nowhere in your country. No, I mean, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, you can't like, you can't just even keep it in your house and like put in a little tin and like leave it outside or have like the, some, the Gentile person out there who's the yeast seller ready to go. You know what I mean? Like get rid of it entirely. Don't have it anywhere near where you are. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, I, so, so this is, and I don't want to use the word burden, but this is supposed to be intentionally difficult to give meaning. And we live in a society where we want everything to be as easy as possible. And so even, say, our access to the Lord's Supper. Uh, We uh, talked about this a little bit at our Winkle today, as we always do talk about the key issues. And so admission to the Lord's Supper is something that um, is important. We take it very seriously. So we have folks who say, come to our congregation and they want to participate in the Lord's Supper but they don't believe in the true presence. They don't believe in um, the confessions that we are publicly making when we t- partake of the Lord's Supper. And so they get offended though, because this is America. I have a right to take of this thing in your church that I'm not a part of. Um, or and more realistically, they'll say things like, well, are you saying I'm not a Christian? And that's not what we're saying. But what always slays me is when we spend, say, three years catechizing youth to be able to be prepared to take that Lord's Supper, and then, you know, Grandma Schlitzendinger, who's, uh, you know, a different religion altogether, comes and wants to take it too. You know, we want to remove any sort of barrier because we want to make everything nice and easy. Well, here's God in the precursor to the Lord's Supper giving them methods by which they can prepare themselves. And we probably should take heed to prepare ourselves when it comes time to receive the Lord's Supper, too. Yeah. Burdens aren't always, and barriers aren't always a bad thing. I think that's a very thing that we constantly fight about of America and just our general culture of that. And that's not always a bad thing. But in these kind of contexts that think of a lot of the commandments that God's going to give, why is God giving these commandments? He's not trying to be rude and just think of you as a parent. If you have a child, you're not sitting there like demanding them to do unreasonable thing, but you're trying to, through hardships, teach them lessons that are worthwhile and that uh, burdens aren't awful. Because we're going to hear later with Jesus, take your yoke upon me and my burdens easy and my burdens light. There's a lot of burdens in this world, and this isn't God going, yeah, I'm going to get you. We're adding one more on top of you. But it's God constantly reminding us when he tells us to do these things, like, it is easy. It is light. I'm here. And don't remember who I am. We really do need to connect ourselves to Christ in ways that doesn't remove the, the drama of what he did to save us from our sins. And something like this ceremony, of course, it's instituted by God, uh, re-fulfilled is the better word, by Christ later in the Lord's Supper. But, you know, not everything that we do in terms of growing in our faith is going to come easy. And that's a good preparation for life too, because the world is not going to treat us nicely 
just because we're Christians. And I think in America, where we've been accustomed to being the preferred religion for so long, now that we are not anymore, um, sometimes we're surprised by how much the world indeed hates Christ and therefore hates us. So there's a lot of things here. When we get into this text here, it says, you should tell your son on that day, it's because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And I loved how you pointed out earlier, you're saying this presumably up to a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand years later, from Moses's point of view, you know, this is for even if you are so far removed from being rescued, it still happened to you. But then he says, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes so that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. Do you know anything about the phylacteries that the, the Jewish tradition has, these small black little leather boxes? Yeah, so generally it's probably only really done with rabbis or if you will, the really people who take the law really seriously. They'll have these little... They're like containers, essentially, that are almost scrolls, and you pull them out, and then there's generally words of Moses on there, and they'll be able to read them. So it's like they're taking it really literal. Like, it is the word of God is right in front of you at all times, and it's, it's, it's a good way maybe to live very devotionally. Yeah, they use it during, from what I understand, and I'm certainly not an expert, but they use it from, like, during times of prayer, um, sort of like mandatory times of prayer, and then they use these devices. But in some places, like the, uh, the, the rabbis or people who are, who are extremely orthodox, they, they, they take it as a law unto themselves, though. They take, as you said, this very literally. But instead, you know, Moses is telling us something different. He's not telling us to make little leather boxes, is he? What is, what is he telling us here? Yeah, it goes back to, I don't remember what verse it is, but it's, I think it's Deuteronomy, where it's like, talk about this on the highways, the byways, and wherever you go, talk about God's word. It's always relevant. And that that's something we, as Christians, especially important to model in our lives with everyone. Uh, just an example, like my my parents really lived by this, and that's, what my parents did whenever we were, I discovered I was actually weird when I was at Concordia St. Paul and I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And I talked to uh, the person in fr- head of the precinct program, right? And I'm like, uh, we'd come home from church and we would talk about the sermon. And he kind of stared at me like, oh, really? You guys actually did that? And I was like, wait, that's <laughs> abnormal? Like, who? It was just so normal for us. Like, we'd talk about the sermon when we were coming home. And this is like, you know, seven-year-old me, this was commonplace. And then I knew I wanted to be a pastor at a younger age, so I just always would talk about this stuff. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want to demean anything, but what really matters more than this? This is everything. And that isn't like saying, you know, don't, you're not allowed to talk about anything else, only this. But it's, let's put in the proper context of what what's going on here. What matters more than passing down this heritage to your children. When you say what matters more than this, that's so true. And people's misunderstanding then that, well, if this is the most important thing, and it is, then you shouldn't be interested in anything else. And that's not true. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, oftentimes, I, for instance, one of my things I like is I like to watch bad movies. I like Rift Tracks and Mystery Science Theater, for those of you who are in the know. Um, so we don't, as pastors, sit at home and and read the Bible from the moment we get off work. Oh, you don't do that? Uh, well, I don't. Uh, 
Uh, by the way, the text you were talking about was Deuteronomy 6. And this is where we get the Shema, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then he goes on to the, the covenant that he swore to Abraham about the promised land. So in addition to the phylacteries, I've also seen the little devices, little boxes on people's doorposts with little scrolls in them. And again, I'm not actually saying these things are bad things, just like you might um, bless yourself with holy water. <laughs> and, and by holy water, I simply mean water that's been reserved for remembrance of your baptism, perhaps water that's been used in a baptism. And what is it? Is it anything special? No, but it's a nice devotional tool that might bring to your remembrance your baptism. Um, at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, as you walk into the uh, chapel of Saints Timothy and Titus, there's this big, giant baptismal pool, and many of the seminarians will dip their hands in there very casually and bless themselves, and it's a, it's a sign of remembrance, and it's a good thing. And, and that's what he's saying here, but he's not commanding it. He's not saying strap these things to your forehead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like as you go about your daily life, talk about these things, because I, I have a more and more feeling that almost everything's theological to some extent. And there's, I mean, go to a movie, go to whatever movie you want to with your kids and beforehand, but though, like ask them, what is this actually, what is this movie actually saying? Like what in here is theological that they did not attend or intend? Cause it's all around us and everything. There's always an opportunity and the whole creation praises our God. So it's not just uh, entertainment, but in every way there's some way to use a tool and to just make the mundane, not to sanctify it in any mean, but like you can use anything to talk about God and be able to relate in some way. It's just kind of who we're supposed to be. Well, it's following in the example of Jesus, right? What are parables except him just taking those opportunities to use the natural things of people's life to communicate a heavenly message? Well, I'll tell you what, we are up against a break. So I uh, will take that break. And in just a few moments when we return, we will come back and continue discussing Exodus chapter 13. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Jesse Baker, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Hardwick, Minnesota. Our Pastor Baker, before the break, we were talking about the phylacteries and how God certainly wants us to uh, remember his tenets, pass down these things. 
He's not commanding that we literally tie things to our forehead, but there's also nothing wrong with it or any sort of devotional practice so long as it points back to Christ or to the message of God. Um, I want to get some more verses down on paper. So we have here, starting with verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's, and every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, and all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so this text, he has them dedicating the firstborn, in this case it seems the males of everybody that is born, both man and beast, which is interesting. Um, and it's all to point back to the to the the blessings that God had given them, the rescue that He brought them out of out of uh, Egypt. How often do we talk about redemption? Besides, if you're like a '90s kid and there was the redemption card game, how often are you talking about it? Well, maybe coupons. Yeah, maybe <laughs> redeem this coupon, but it's not a part of our vocabulary no. anymore at all, unfortunately. So yeah, where do we use that language? I'm just thinking elsewhere, and I I believe you're right. It's not something we talk about a lot. But what are we redeeming? Like, like, you know, when he says you have to dedicate the firstborn, he's saying sacrifice, right? Yeah, it goes almost back to, I mean, the first time we see this really happening, it's with Abraham and Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. He goes up and what happens? I mean, God's not joking around. I always say this, like God's not being cute when he told, says a lot of these things. He's pretty serious. Like Abraham, go take your kid and sacrifice him. Right. And so the redemption is so that the sacrifice is carried out upon somebody other than your animal or other than your child. I brought that up once in a Bible study context and people were kind of upset. They're like, oh, so you're saying that God is for child sacrifice? And I said, listen, I'm saying what the Bible says. He says, dedicate, sac consecrate, sacrifice this person or animal to me, the firstborn. That's, in a way, the law. But then the gospel is, here's how you can redeem them. You can redeem them with this animal, which has lesser value. And then this animal, which redeems them, will point forward to Christ, of course, he doesn't have lesser value. He has more value. Uh, but yeah, we, we, this language of redemption is lost primarily because Christ has fulfilled the redemption for us. We get to now look back and say, okay, he's done everything that's necessary. But unfortunately, uh, we've also lost how significant that is. Yeah. That just as God says, you must sacrifice your firstborn, he looks at us and says, you deserve now to die, but I've redeemed you through Christ. Yeah. The fact we need redemption speaks to original sin. 
it's not that we're, you know, perfect and God's doing this to be fun and games, if you will. But like legitimately, if you need to be redeemed from something, that means there's something wrong, fundamentally wrong, not just, you know, it, this isn't just the case of the firstborn's the problem. All the other kids can go off and be heathens and it's fine. And by any extent of the imagination, it's a reminder to everyone with the firstborn male, because that's just God, how God chose to work, that this is serious. This isn't something to be taken lightly or fun in games. But this, there's something wrong. There's sin here. And the only way to solve the sin is through sacrifice, which is ultimately pointing to the greatest sacrifice ever made that does atone for the sins of the world. And that was the point of the sacrificial systems that, that to come, people will say, well, why did God require sacrifice for sins? Well, because God is just. He requires punishment. You know, sins cannot go unpunished, period. And it's not, well, he's being mean. Well, now you're measuring God on a, on a scale that we've come up with. God is wholly other. He's outside of our understanding. So if God says, listen, I'm just, I have to uh, not let sin in my presence, and I absolutely have to uh, have sin be punished, the mercy comes in when he says, now you can take out that punishment instead of on yourself, but, but upon this lamb or this goat or whatever. And then, and then, that gets them into the understanding that God requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, so that by the time Christ, it's time for him to come, people have that understanding. Christ has come now, and people, I think what we're getting at, has maybe lost the significance of his sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Oh, is yes, it that nice? But what does that mean? Yeah, that's everything. Right. It's it goes back to a lot what you spend in time at seminary. It's don't just think you're saying the gospel, but give it. Yeah. Don't just say you know oh, isn't God so wonderful and He died. So what? Who cares? Right. Until you get to the point of, well, he died for your sins so you can live eternally with him in blessed blessedness. This forgiveness is for you. Yeah. It's not for the squirrel down there <laughs> or the trees it, it, or, you know, someone else or just that one guy who's righteous. Right. But it's for you. Mm. Even while you're still an enemy of God and you deserve death, he came and died for you. That's essentially the gospel. Right, we we deserve death. We deserve uh, everything that's c coming to us because of our sins, and yet, in God's mercy and grace, He sent Jesus to live the perfect life we couldn't, to die the death we deserve. And what good is that if Christ were to just to have died? What good is God if He's dead? None. He rose from the grave. That th sort of three-part event—Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. You've probably heard your pastor at home preach consistently. At least I hope you have. Um, he's, he's trying his best to bring it up in ways that connect to you in new ways each time. But it is the same message every time because we need to keep hearing the gospel because we continuously forget the gospel. I think Luther might have said that. And uh, But that's called the cross event, right? That is what God has done for us. That's the redemption. Yeah, right. that's which makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, really. Not from our point of view. No, not at all. Why would God bother dealing with me? Yeah. I mean, I might be a pastor, but goodness, I know. I don't even know the depths of my own sin. Let's be honest. And what does God do still? He comes and dies. It makes no sense why the Lord of all creation 
would bother going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come down from heaven and I'm going to become part of my creation that is completely messed up so I can save it and it can be with me. I mean, it is so beyond us and that is so wonderful for us that it is beyond us. So when we talk about this language of redemption, especially as it applies to Jesus, you know, folks, you can think back to verses 13 here in Exodus 13, 13, 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. That's what you can sacrifice instead of the donkey. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. So that's the, the sacrificial image that we're getting across here. He does say, though, in the second half of the verse, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So I want to make sure this is really clear, that while God is giving us this language of redemption that's going to come in handy when Christ comes, he orders them to redeem their children. So at no point does God say, you have to sacrifice your child for me. Um, I think it's worth bringing up just because sometimes people get the wrong idea. But ultimately, this is the same thing, though. You're still rescuing your son, or your son in this case, out of uh, his sacrifice by means of an animal. And this is to give us that language. Yeah. So uh, we've talked about redemption. It's very important to understand, but let's get in chapters, pardon me, verses 17 through 22. It's the rest of our chapter. Um, and this is when the pillars of cloud and fire uh, come. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So he's taken a step back, Moses has, and gone back to when Pharaoh actually let the people go. We haven't got to the Red Sea yet, but God is leading the way. What I think is interesting about this text, Pastor, is that he, he's leading them the long way. Um, they would have, and, and critics of the scriptures have actually gotten really upset over this. They've looked at the text and they said, it doesn't make sense. You were talking about God making sense. He doesn't to us all the time. Even though we do have some reasoning given, ultimately, it seems like they just go the long way to the promised land. They didn't, it doesn't take 40 years to get to the promised land from Egypt. So God obviously has something in mind here, but in this particular case, there's a concern. You know, there's a coastal highway that led from Egypt into Canaan through Philistine territory, uh, but it was heavily fortified. Interestingly enough, at least from the notes I've read, the fortifications weren't necessarily the Philistines so much as it was the Egyptian fortifications. But for whatever it is, you know, it, they're going to have a hard time getting to Canaan if they have to fight off the Egyptians or if they were to upset the Philistines. Um, 
But then what, what I like how he points out here is he's afraid that they're going to see war and they're going to want to return to Egypt. Yeah. But pastor, why would they want to return to slavery? They do it all the time. They do. <laughs> they do. I mean, think how many times it happens. They get to the, in the, get to the Red Sea. What did they say? Man, we should have just stayed slaves. The flesh pots back in Egypt. Yeah. Right? Where's the meat pots? Yeah. And then you get to the promised land and what is it? Hey, there's some really big guys. They're scary. <laughs> let's, let's, why are we here? This is awful. It's because I, for whatever reason, our sinful nature loves taking what I will call the hard way out. It, it seems easier up front, but it really isn't at all. We, we look for the escape to go, man, God's going to make me grow and he's going to push me. How about no? Isn't that just a microcosm of our relationship with sin in general and God? God, imagine the last time that you felt extremely guilty and grieved over your sin, over a sin, one you struggled with. And you felt so grieved that you're almost embarrassed. You don't even want to come to church. You don't want to take communion. But you, through God's word, come to the appreciation that that sin is forgiven. You're remorseful. Christ, that's a sin for which Christ has died. And God forgives you. You're re, you, you repent. And that joy you feel over like having been plucked from the sea and you just could, you'd be on top of the world. And then next time the temptation for that sin comes around, you go, huh, maybe I, maybe I want to give into this sin. You know, your old self starts sort of, you know, he's been drowned, but he's a good swimmer. So he's trying to paddle back into that sin. And, and you forget the glory it was to be forgiven in the Lord. That's sort of the Christian life. We struggle with sins and temptation. So when they are rescued from slavery, just as we're rescued from the slavery of sin, they constantly want to go back to it. Yeah, and it's not like it was, you know, five, ten years ago this happened. This happened yesterday. I mean, really? And how often does it happen for us too? Man, we just come, we got communion. We just heard the word of the Lord come to us and we just received it into us. And what do we do? Well, that was nice, Jesus, but, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, oh, you know, I, there's nothing I need to do to uh, save myself, right? It's all done by Christ. Then our old self takes that to say, well, okay, then if there's nothing you can do, then you might as well do whatever you want. Yeah. And that's certainly not the way it is either. But I also like the image of the pillars of cloud and fire going forth. It never departed from before the people. So whether it was light or dark, people saw an incarnation, so to speak, of God, a yeah. manifestation of God. Yeah, God isn't, and that's the thing. God's literally guiding them through these extraordinary means. And it, it comes back again, and you just keep thinking, man, these people keep seeing God enact in these amazing ways. Why don't they just finally get it? You know what that also tells me, though? I don't know about you, but how many times have you talked with someone who isn't a believer or they're a critic of the church or maybe they're really struggling with doubt and they'll say things like, if only God would show himself, if <laughs> yeah. only God would give us a sign, if only God would. And of course, you want to be really cynical and you want to say, if only God would uh, send his son and live and die and rise again for you. Well, no, but I mean, now, if God would do something now. What about a baptism? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, what really? about the miracle of the Lord's Supper? Yeah. But even, even beyond that, Jesus himself said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, in the context of that, he says, if, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they're not going to believe. 
And right here, we have a real life example, not a, not a parable of them constantly seeing God's hand, literally seeing God. And yet, you know, God knows that at the first sign of resistance, they're going to want to go back to what was comfortable, even if what was comfortable was slavery. Um, and, and that's, that's a, that's a scary opportunity or sorry, scary proposition because we too find such comfort in the temptations to sin, even cause that's the lie that Satan gives us. Even if of course, once we find ourselves in that sin, the Holy spirit works on us and says, you need to repent. But yeah, I, it's, I think that's ultimately some of the message here of, you know, why does the Bible tell us this stuff? Why does Moses tell us all of these details? Well, it's not only just to pass down the tenets, but God knows that even in the 21st century United States that we can learn from this. Yeah, we're not any different. I think it's so many people, it's so easy to read the Old Testament and even the New Testament for that matter. Like, guys, you saw all these amazing things. Like, think of all the things Jesus does. The feeding of 4,000, healing all those people and everything he done. Just, it's utterly amazing. And what do these people then say? Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, the New Testament, I guess I'd, I was thinking about the Old Testament, but the New Testament too. It has all of these, you know, amazing miracles of Jesus. And that's the reason why, I suppose, for sure, Jesus didn't just set up a miracle chop shop, right? You know, yeah. it, he, he certainly, that wasn't the reason he came, but he could have. He could have set up a crystal palace of miracles right there and just healed everybody. He had been wealthy and famous beyond, beyond imagination. Um, yeah, he doesn't because A, it's not the point, and B, it wouldn't matter. People would forget the moment that he couldn't do for them what they wanted or he wouldn't do for yeah. them. Yeah. <sighs> Miracles don't create faith. And I remember oh, back in middle school, it got popular kind of talking about what if Jesus came today, what would that look like? And would he be able to reach the world in a better way? And would his miracles be more accepted? And I'm like, absolutely not. What difference would it make? Right. Yeah, I've heard that too. If people, if, if Jesus would come back today, we have now recording devices and cameras and and video cameras and all this other stuff. No, then you would have people saying, well, that's just CGI or he's a magician or he's a con artist. Uh, God came in the perfect timing according to his will. Maybe not our preference, but doesn't everybody of every generation say, I wish Jesus would have come right now. Yeah. But, but do he we? does. <laughs> well, he does. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. He does do that. I like that. That's true. But I always say too, reality is what you make it. Is it founded on truth or is it founded on lies? Because think about these people. They're seeing these pillars of fire and this pillar of dust leading through the desert. And these people are seeing Jesus form all these miracles and they can still just say, oh, whatever with that. It's, it doesn't matter how much evidence you have at all. People, sin, unfortunately, is a really warm blanket that's slowly killing you. Well, that's very poetic, but it's true. It is true. Now, taking a little bit of a shift here, we see in verse uh, 19 that the bones of Joseph, right? They, they're taking the bones of Joseph with them. Um, this comes to us from Genesis 50, verse 25. It says, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph is one of those ones who knows that God is active in redeeming his people, but knows that he's not going to see that come to fruition. 
Yeah. But he's so confident. He says, when it happens. Yeah. That's the story of Genesis. Take my bones. Yeah. I mean, think of the Abrahamic covenant. It's constantly that way. Think of Abraham. It's, you know, you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the heaven and uh, sand on the seashore. How many kids does he have? Promised through the covenant. One. And what is Abraham left with? Essentially a tomb that he's buried in. Yeah. And what, it, what is God's promise, though? It's still coming. Right. And then what happens a little bit later if Jacob gets a little more unfolded? And even here, you, you, you keep seeing that God will work on God's time, and God does not particularly care if it matches your time frame. I think that's super important. You know, God works on his own time frame, mostly because I would say he's outside of time. Yeah. I mean, he's as close to the events of our chapter today as he is to the end of the world um, in terms of time. So to him, you know, it really only affects us. Now, he condescends to us. He certainly comes down to us and, and operates within history and gives us, you know, prophecies that have come to fulfillment. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to ponder that. And they take up Joseph's bones because he had such confidence that God is going to provide. He says, God will surely visit with you. They, Moses actually quotes, oh, I guess, himself because he wrote yeah. Genesis too. Um, and then they move on to the edge of the wilderness, and then we have that the Lord went before them, Yahweh went before them, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. I have some notes here from a uh, just one of these study Bibles, and I think it's interesting. They said, the pillar of cloud served to help protect the people from the scorching rays of the sun. Now, that may be true. But it's not the point. I'm yeah. pretty confident. Yeah. <laughs> it's not though God's like, you know, I'm going to make things nice and cool on you guys. I'm going to put a big pillar of cloud up. Um, I'm not even certain that it would have been big enough to make any difference, at least in the way I've always imagined it. Uh, but pastor, what is the point of the pillar of cloud and fire? It's, it's not just to keep them warm at night and cool in the day, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's not there for those kind of reason, reasons. It's there to guide them through a really obvious, like it's God saying, hey guys, right here, like he's clanging a bell. Like it's clearly me leading you. These, if you haven't noticed, these things don't just happen and just stay there for extended period of times. It's a very obvious God putting his hand out and saying, this is me. There is no question about it. I am leading you out. You can't say you guys just were wandering and, you know, just going about your own business confused. And I just kind of left you alone, but I am intimately present here leading you through this. It reminds them too, that Moses, while certainly the earthly leader representative of God and Aaron too, um, but God is their leader, right? God is the one guiding you, um, which will come in handy for Moses when the grumbling starts because they're going to grumble. They're going to want to go back to Egypt uh, just when they encounter hostilities and obstacles. But, you know, there's points where Moses says, you're not mad at me, you're mad at God. And yet they forget that. And, we, and we're going to see this fire and this cloud again in chapter 19 when they're up on Mount Sinai and God's presence is there so it's also God showing them like, this is how I'm displaying myself for your benefit. And then it's going to be even greater when they're on that, you know, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and uh, we will get the 10 commandments. So that's what most people think of when they think of Exodus, but it's, it's more than that. It's God's story of redemption. Yeah. Yeah. It's our story of redemption. Mm, I absolutely. think that's something 
I think the church is getting better at, but for a long time, we, how do I say this besides sounding, we almost became New Testament snobs. Mm-hmm. Like, why would we ever go to the Old Testament? It's like, cause that's our, that's our heritage. This is the story of how God has protected and saved the church throughout all of time. There is an early church heretic, Marcion, who said that uh, the Old Testament was not uh, useful for the church, that we shouldn't use it anymore. In fact, I, if I'm reading, remember correctly, he said that we should only use the New Testament. And by New Testament, he meant some of the books of Paul and like an edited version of Luke. So the problem, if, if again, I'm not an expert on this, but I think the problem from Marcin's point of view, because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be a heretic. Nobody. So he thinks he has a good idea. He thinks that it's going to be a benefit of God's people. So he gets up and he says, you know, there's all this stuff in the Old Testament. And, it, and from his point of view, it's this sort of angry God. Um, but really, it's all about just Christ's love now. And that was the point. Um, I'm sure there's more to it than that. So, you know, you can write in at pastorboo at gmail.com. But the ultimate idea today is that we've kind of become unintentional Marcionites. We, we've said, well, it's not it's not useful to study the Old Testament because the New Testament has come. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we made the mistake by calling it the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we should have left it with, you know. I don't know if first covenant works because you know there's so many covenants in the Old yeah. Testament. So I don't know what we would call it. It almost work better like something like that, like the renewed covenant being the mm. New Testament and or something. The fulfilled covenant. Yeah. And yeah. it's is it better? Oh, hundred percent, absolutely, of course. Yeah. But how do you think you get to that point? Right. And, and you know, this is catechetical talk, but the Old Testament points forward to the Christ who is to come. The New Testament points backward and reveals the Christ who came. If you think of it that way, you also have to recognize that they are important to each other. And if for no other reason, if for no other reason, so folks out there probably have a preference in Bible ver- versions. Um, I I like uh, the NASB a little bit. I like the Evangelical Heritage version. I usually use the ESV on the program because that's typically what the LCMS's uh, uh, Bible verses are put out in, you know, because just so we can all have on the same page. Other people like the NIV, the old one. And I, uh, I know a lot of people like the King James. I grew up saying that, you know, you could only have the King James version of the Bible. And I, I had some, it's a joke, but it's true. I heard someone say once, well, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Oh, amen. Yeah. Right. Obviously. Problem with that is that not only is the King James version much, 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 much later than Christ's uh, time on earth, it, it, they also didn't have the New Testament. It's in the process of being written and inspired. So Jesus's Bible, if we want to talk about it like that, is the Old Testament. It's the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Um, so if no other reason, we should be in the Old Testament because it's the Bible of Jesus. Yeah, and like you said, a lot of people have this view of the God of the Old Testament, this mean God, and how dare he? It's like, you clearly haven't read the Old Testament then. Because <laughs> really, read Genesis and Exodus, definitely, because that's what we're in. But when isn't God working salvation? When isn't God showing his people grace and mercy they frankly don't deserve? Well, they nitpick individual acts of judgment that God displays. But those are important too. They also set the <laughs> they set the stage for us seeing God's grace. If God is one who never punishes sin, then there's nothing to Christ's sacrifice or grace or any of that. 
So, you know, he has to demonstrate his judgment in order to demonstrate his love. And I think people just look at that and they, they look at it with uncritical eyes or maybe overly critical eyes and say, well, you know, that's the mean God. And now we have this new God in Jesus. Just not the way to look at things. Yeah. When Jesus was working through these means back then, mm-hmm. he, he brought his people out of Egypt. He didn't leave them there. He could have. God didn't have to bring his people out of Egypt. God could have done something completely different, mm-hmm. but he didn't. He comes and does these wonderful acts and even skip ahead thousands of years, if you will, the Babylonian captivity could have left him there. Yeah. But he doesn't. That's the thing. It's not like, it's not like Israel doesn't deserve the punishment they get. They a hundred percent deserve the punishment they get. If they have it coming, if you will, cause they, they rebel against God. They say, you know what, God, you've done all these wonderful things. You have let us out with a pillar of fire, but you know what? We're going to go serve other gods. Unless we get too smug, we are following in the footsteps of Israel yeah. all the time. You know, not the perfect Israel in one man, Jesus, but in the Israel of the Old Testament, God's people then are God's people today. People for, who have no expectation of being saved and yet are purely out of the grace and mercy of God through Christ. And yet we still struggle with that old nature. We still want to be back in Egypt. Um, That's something that we have to contend with. Well, we just have a few minutes left in the program. So in these last few minutes, I just want to invite you to sum up, say anything else you want. The the last three or four minutes are all yours. Yeah. I think the thing that we always got to keep in mind when we're reading these passages and we're talking about our struggle of sin still is always looking to the fulfillment of the promises we have, the, the final promise to come where these issues are no longer issues. I, and I always say this, we, we, you have, whatever you imagine eternity to be like, it's going to be way better than that. You, you, we have no comprehension of what that's going to look like. And that, that is the thing that excites me constantly. It's not just wonderful little tidbits on earth and that's helpful wisdom, but this is the source and the fountain of salvation that we have coming for us. And that one day, you know what, we get to go talk to Moses we got to go talk to the saints that have come before and after us. And ultimately, obviously, the big thing is to be with our Savior. And that is always what it's leading to is that act that God has loved us so much. He's going to spend eternity with us. And that is completely beyond our comprehension. And that is the best possible news you could ever get. And that's why we talk about it. This is why we talked about, and Moses talks about, keep talking with your children, keep doing it. And if you're not good at it, we'll keep doing it anyways. And that's the responsibility we've been given. And what, what a better, can you ask for a better responsibility than pass down this heritage? I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Jesse Baker, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Hardwick, Minnesota. Thank you, pastor, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. On Monday, we will continue in Exodus with the account of God's people being led safely across the Red Sea. Don't miss it. And if you're going out there for Black Friday today, stay safe. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.